All right, welcome back. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 this morning. As we continue along and we finish up this study in Acts chapter 13. I'm really despising this getting older thing. I just got a new glasses prescription with reading. This uh, Bible I have, which I've had for a long time, is starting to give me issues. So I've got another one with larger print waiting in the wings. But I'm resisting the change because I have so many notes in here. It is so hard to, to get away from this. So pray for me in my struggle. Acts chapter 13. Uh, we are going to begin by reading uh, here in verse 13. Now, we're going to cover all the way to verse 52, but this is a, uh, kind of, there's no real break here, so we're just going to plow through this and read it and uh, let the Lord minister to us. So picking it up here in chapter 13, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised, raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So the Lord has commanded us, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you will minister your word to us as it falls on the soil of our hearts. And may the soil of our hearts today be that fourth soil, that rich soil that bears forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. We open our hearts and our minds to you, Lord. Would you be our speaker and our teacher and our guide in Jesus' name? Amen. Last week, we covered the first section of chapter 13, and it's such a beautiful section, and it deals with something that we often miss, and Pastor Mitch did a fantastic job in teaching that passage. If you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message. But in verse 2, we are told that as they ministered to the Lord, that is, those men who were gathered there that day, somewhere in a room or or wherever it was, as they were just worshiping God, it says they were ministering to the Lord and they fasted. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You know, ministering to the Lord means doing what pleases him. It means honoring him. It means worship and prayer and praise, and thanksgiving, listening to God. You know how it is in your relationships when you sit with someone, whether it be your spouse or whether it be a friend, and as you're having conversation, there's back and forth. One of you speaks while one listens, and then the other one speaks, and you listen. And so it is with the Lord. Ministering to the Lord in some respects, could be described as giving him face time, giving him attention. You see, it's not that God needs our attention to be validated. You know, we're the ones who need someone else's attention to be, val- uh, to be validated, to be encouraged, to feel loved. God doesn't need our love, but he wants our love. And so they were there ministering to the Lord. And what came out of this time of ministering to the Lord, which is both private and public, by the way, they were ministering in private, they were gathered somewhere, and of course, ministering to the Lord can be personal and and one-on-one, you with the Lord, as it often is, but it's also public in the sense that we do it in church services. We have special times of worship and prayer. 
but also then as the Lord has spoken, as in this case, and in this case as the Lord or the Holy Spirit sent them out, that ministering to the Lord continues as they now go and do what God has called them to do, what he has put on their hearts. Remember, all the way back at the beginning of Saul's salvation, and at this point, probably at least 12 years prior to this point in time, the Lord has been ministering to Saul. And as he's been ministering to him, back on that day when he was saved, remember Ananias came to him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord has called you. He's given you this salvation and then giving you this salvation. He's going to raise you up to be a servant, to be a minister to kings and to dignitaries. And you're going to go and travel and you're going to share the word of God and you're going to suffer many things for my name. Up till now is... Uh, Remember, Saul went away after he was saved to the Arabian desert for three years, and then he spent some time, got sent away back out to uh, his hometown of Tarsus. And then at the beginning of this, back in chapter 12, Barnabas, uh, as the Lord began to move and minister and grow the church there in uh, Antioch of Syria, he said, I know the right guy for this. It's Saul. Let me go get him. And he went out and he found him and then he brought him. So all of this time, all of those years, Saul has been uh, in, in his own way ministering to the Lord and the Lord ministering to him. And there's this idea that, you know, we can't give out that which we don't have. So here's the question. As these folks were ministering to the Lord and the Lord filled them up and the Holy Spirit spoke to them and he spoke in such a way I doubt it was an audible voice, but it was something that was unified. All of these men who were gathered in this room together, they agreed. They're like, yes, we sense the Spirit of God saying this to us, that Saul and Barnabas should be set aside. And you know, often I talk to people, it's true in my own life, but we all have a need to hear from the Lord, don't we? What is God's will for my day? For the next four hours, God, how do you want me to serve you? You know, maybe God's given an opportunity to you. Lord, what do you want me to do? Sometimes it's just making a lifestyle change. Sometimes it's making an attitude or a mentality adjustment. Maybe it's something that God's been putting on your heart and it's going to require a sacrifice. Maybe you're going to have to sell something. Maybe you're going to have to, you know, sell your home or, or move or, you know, make some large adjustment in your life. But We don't want to do these things just willy-nilly, just, you know, hey, whatever I think is best is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do me, you do you. Well, that's a worldly attitude. That's not a godly biblical attitude. We want to be like these men, ministering to the Lord, the Lord ministering to us. And then the Lord speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking and ministering. How do we hear? How do we determine? Well, it's through a thing in our society. We call it something like devotions or a quiet time. And what does it mean to do that? I don't know what you do, but what it, what it can be, what it, it often is, it's a time that we set aside. It's a priority. So the first thing is it's a priority. It's a priority that we set aside. You see, contrary to popular belief, and I, I've, I've been dealing with this for years in my own life in, in helping and hopefully coming alongside people who are struggling with this issue of what does it mean to get alone with God, just to have devotions, to have a quiet time. And it starts with a priority, a non-negotiable. We all have non-negotiables in our lives, right? For some of you, a non-negotiable is I'm, I will never jump out of an airplane, Right? Or I will never do whatever, you know, pick your poison, whatever it might be. That's a priority, right? That's a non-negotiable. Like, I'm never going to do that. Well, for us, we need to have that same kind of mentality, that same kind of priority about our devotional life. And we need to find that time that works for us. And we need to set it aside. You say, how much time? I can't tell you that. Maybe you need to start with 10 minutes. Maybe it's a half hour. That's up to you and the Lord. But uh, I remember when I was in college and I first began to get discipled by people, what they told me is start small. Do, t- do 10, 10, 15 minutes. 
You can do 15 minutes. We waste more time than that on our phones, right? Don't we? Just admit it. Facebook, social media, games, whatever it might be. So you have time. You know the clicker in your hand for the TV? You can put it down. It's okay. You can let it go. You see, we do have time. We absolutely do. It needs to become a priority. And I'm not saying this to manipulate you or anything like that. I'm just trying to help us all understand we do have time. So it needs to start with a priority. And then you say, well, what do I do? Well, we've provided some Bible reading programs, uh, pamphlets out there often, like my Bible actually has one in the back. But, you know, you don't even have to do that. Just start somewhere. Go to the Gospel of John. Go to Genesis. It doesn't matter. And just start reading. But here's the deal. Our attitude has to be, when we come before the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm here. I'm your servant. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I do love you. You've saved me. Lord, I want to hear from you. Would you speak to me? And so we begin. You begin where you begin. So for those of you this morning who might need to start afresh, I'm just going to suggest, because it's a great place, go to the Gospel of John and just start reading. How far should I read? How long? That's up to you. Just read, pray. Don't be afraid to write in your Bible. Underline, circle, highlight. And maybe keep a journal. You know, I'm not the journaling type. That's okay. Just keep a piece of paper there. Here's, here's the purpose of that piece of paper. And one is, you know how it is when you set out to do something, right? And then the phone rings and, and something buzzes. The timer goes off. You're, oh yeah, I've got all these things. If I don't write them down right now, I'm going to forget them. That's what that piece of paper is for. All that stuff that floods into your mind. It's a part of that process of quieting your spirit before God. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Intimacy with the Almighty. In this beautiful little book, he had four little things. Um, and now I can Simplicity, silence, solitude, and surrender. Simplicity, silence, solitude, and surrender. And in that process for us, maybe we have a noisy mind. Maybe we have a troubled heart. Maybe we have a lot of stuff that we're worried about. That piece of paper is there to put that stuff down. Just write it down. You know, anxiety, decisions, uh, get milk. Whatever pops into your mind, write it all down. It's there. Now you can focus. You're like, but I have ADD. Okay, well, ask God to help you overcome your ADD. I have OCD. Ask God to help you overcome your OCD. And sit before him. And just say, God, speak to me and read and let the Holy Spirit, this is the sword of the Spirit, right? And as believers, we've been given his Holy Spirit who indwelt us at the point of salvation. So if we have the Spirit within us, and this is the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, do you see that the Spirit of God might want to connect the Spirit that's in us with the words that he's spoken right here in this book? And it might take some time. You might sit down that first day or that first time and you kind of go, I got nothing out of that. That's okay, do it tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. Life is regular, right? It happens, the sun comes up, you got to get up, you got to go to work, you got to do the stuff you got to do. Let's do it with the Lord. Amen? So just sit there and let the Lord speak to you. You're like, what about prayer? Pray, write down your prayer requests. And you know, the great thing about writing down your prayer requests is, is that that gives you an opportunity when God answers, now you can go back and say it was answered on this date, if you want to. But here's the thing, it does, that inspires faith in us, because now we, we have a record. We see God's faithfulness in our own lives. So I want to encourage you with that. These men, as they were serving and ministering to the Lord, uh, the word there about serving and ministering, it means to serve or to uh, minister at one's own expense. So it is a sacrifice. You know, David, King David in the Old Testament, uh, he came to this place, the threshing floor of Arunan, I think it was. And he, he wanted to make a sacrifice. He wanted to worship the Lord. And as he came, the, the servant who was there, the man who owned the land, 
uh, when David said, hey, I'd like to use this threshing floor to build a little altar and make a sacrifice, he's like, oh, it's yours, king. You can have it. And David said, no, 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 I don't want you to give it to me. He said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And in that we find a principle that it does cost us something. We do, here's what we have to do. We, here's what it costs us, you ready? It costs us setting aside the worries and the cares of the world. Because we are control freaks, every single one of us, right? Some of us more than others, admit it. But we have to practice letting go. Sitting before the Lord and just saying, God, all this stuff, all these plates I have spinning, all this stuff going on in my life, you know, the stress, the anxiety that you carry, let it go. It's okay if those plates crash and burn. It really is. Because God's in control. And we need to learn to let him be in control. So it does cost us something to serve him. A synonym of this word that's used that means to minister would be the word diakono, which is where we get our word deacon, and it means to minister voluntarily, or doulos, which is a servant or a slave. But here's an antonym to that word of minister being used here to minister to the Lord. Here's, you know, antonym means the opposite, right? Everybody remembers this from eighth grade English? We're good. Antonym, to be idle. Meaning, when we sit before the Lord, we may think of it as being idle, but when we're sitting before the Lord, we're not being idle. We are ministering to Him. Uh, there's an acronym I learned a long time ago, and you can use this if it helps you. Sometimes it helps to have sort of a handle to grab a hold of, and it's the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Some of us are ritual people, and that's okay. Maybe I need to do this every day. Adoration, worshiping God, thanksgiving, cultivating a gratitude in my life. Uh, adoration, confession, confessing my sins. Right? That's, that's healthy. We need to do that. We need to own up and confess these things before the Lord, whatever these things are. The thanksgiving and the supplication. That's praying for others. Praying for my own needs, praying for others. That's a healthy thing. What if you say, I only got 15 minutes, that's all I've got? Well, give God that 15 minutes. And you know what God does because this is how he works. He takes loaves and fishes and he multiplies them. God takes 15 minutes and can make it seem like an hour. And then here's what's going to happen. If you start giving God 15 minutes, pretty soon you're going to find yourself in the place where you wish that 15 minutes was an hour. And God will work in your life. Well, these men were doing that. They had set aside this time. The Spirit spoke to them and said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul. And that idea of separation means to call something holy, to set it aside and say, no, this is intended for this purpose. You know, we do this sometimes in our budgets, don't we? Uh, some of us learned this many years ago when you're budgeting, you know, you get a jar or an envelope or something. It's like, okay, okay we're saved. This is our savings envelope. And so every time I get paid, I'm putting, you know, I don't know, 50 bucks in there and I'm putting this in my giving envelope and I'm putting this in my college fund and we set it aside, right? We sanctify it. We say it's for that purpose. And so God did with these men and so God wants to do with you and I. One commentator says, if you will separate to God, it means you must separate from other things. You really can't say yes to God, whether he has a call on your life or he's speaking to you, until you can say no to things that will keep you from that call. Many years ago, in one of the business books I had read, the man who was writing said, in order to say yes to something, you have to say no to something. And often to say no to something, you have to have a bigger yes burning within for something else. And so it is with our time with God. And then as they went out and they were sent out, we find out as they went, and again, Pastor Mitch walked us through this so well last week. In verse 7, we find out as they got to the island of Cyprus, they came upon this man, this magistrate, this ruler, this proconsul, his name was Sergius Paulus, and it says this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That's awesome. How many people come to you and say, can you 
explain to me the word of God. And that's what this man did. And he heard that they were preaching and they had come to the area. And so they began to preach the word of God. And then there was this crazy thing that happened with the sorcerer, Elimus. And then as the Lord moved through Paul in that situation and caused Elimus to come blind, to experience physically what he already was in spiritually, which was blindness. He was in spiritual blindness. And so God moved him into physical blindness to understand that that blindness was very real. And it says in verse 12, Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord, he believed. And so now that ministering to the Lord that started in private is now bearing fruit in public. Now as they are ministering, they've ministered in private, now they're ministering in public, and God is blessing it. So in verse 13, as we continue our story, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So again, we know this was John Mark. Uh, his mother was one of the Marys. Back when you know Peter got out of prison and he was trying to get in to the house where the prayer meeting was happening, that was John Mark's mother's house. And we believe there, when that happened in Jerusalem, back in chapter 12, that probably Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas were, were in that prayer meeting. Certainly, uh, John's mother was. John Mark himself was in that prayer meeting. So there's this, these connections going on. But now, as they uh, are, are starting out on this first missionary journey, remember last week we sort of looked at a map. They, they left Antioch, they went down to the island of Cyprus, they went through that island, and then as they left that island and came back up on the mainland to begin to press on up into the region of Galatia and Turkey, at that point, John Mark departed from them. Now, we are not told why he departed, but we're going to find out in chapter 15 that this became an issue, it became a sticking point between Paul and Barnabas. And it caused a sharp contention between them. We'll deal with that when we get there. But at this point, he departed and he went back to Jerusalem. Now, it would seem that the role that John Mark was fulfilling in traveling with these two men, who were both uh, prophets and later Barnabas is actually called an apostle later on in, in our story. But John Mark was there to serve them. You know, I imagine it would be something like, uh, as they went to a city, John Mark was responsible for making sure they had food, and he probably carried the money, and uh, he was responsible for finding a place for them to sleep, and, and all of those things. And yet, he departed from them. And this didn't sit right with Paul, because now, instead of having sort of a deacon, if you will, to serve and to minister so that they could be free to do what God had called them to do, they needed to add that into their daily things that they cared about. But God still took care of it. And in verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, something about Antiochs. There were multiple Antiochs in this day all throughout the region, but we're talking about two. We're talking about Antioch of Syria, which became the Gentile church and became the center for missions and outreach to the Gentile world. And now as they're traveling, they're going to another prominent city called Antioch up in Turkey, and it's called Antioch of Pisidia. So make sure as you read, you understand Antioch of Syria, Antioch of Pisidia. It spells it out for us here. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and this became pretty much Paul's pattern for ministry. He went to the Jews first, and then he would minister to the Gentiles. Something that's interesting to us as Paul and Barnabas were moving up into the region of Antioch and Pisidia, when they got off the ship there at the shore, uh, they were at sea level, right? We understand, call sea level zero. And as they were headed up to Pisidia, it was 135 miles inland to the north, and it was going through mountains. And uh, Antioch of Pisidia was an altitude of about 3,600 feet. So they were now traveling on foot, 135 miles, and a steady rise up to 3,600 feet. So imagine doing this on foot, and yet that's what these men were doing. Now it's reasoned, and it's speculation, that during this time as they were traveling, that Paul caught malaria, 
uh, perhaps some other disease traveling through this, this region uh, in the coastal plains and getting up into the mountains and the thin mountain air helped him. Uh, we know that whether it was malaria or typhoid or something like that, that those often kind of kick off intense headaches, much akin to migraines. As we go through Paul's life, we find out that pretty much from this time, he begins to speak about maladies and difficulties that he had. And he begins to write, you know, hey, if you could, you you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So Paul suffered with these physical maladies. And later, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talked about a thorn in the flesh. He never told us specifically what that thorn was. There are many who speculate, which is what it is, speculation, that it could be these things that he contracted on the first missionary journey as he was traveling and that he carried these things with him through his whole life. But remember in 2 Corinthians 12, in that amazing passage, Paul says, concerning this thing, this thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times. And the, the implication there in the passage is it wasn't he just came before the Lord three times like a little kid begging for cookies. Mom, can I have some cookies? No. Mom, can I have some cookies? No. It wasn't like that. It was over time. So when he says three times I pleaded with the Lord, the implication is over the course of time. It was, became something that Paul prayed about. And he said, the Lord answered me. And he said, my grace is made perfect in your weakness and I, make, I give you strength in your weakness because when you're weak, now I can strengthen you and now you can give testimony to the fact that it's me who's working in you. It's my strength, it's my power, it's my spirit, it's not you. And so often we get frustrated, don't we? When we have physical setbacks, when we have limitations, But God does these things so often to keep us in a place where we have to be dependent upon Him. This is why it's so important to be alone with Him and let Him speak these things to our lives. So verse 15, after the reading of the law, he's there. Uh, And this is what would often happen is that Paul was a rabbi. He was recognized as such. He was trained as such. He was the greed. And whenever a local synagogue saw someone new and they realized that perhaps this person is a a rabbi or a prophet or something like that, they would often say, as they said here, um, you know, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. These were all very common things. You know, hey, settle down. I, I got something to say. Listen up. And then he began to speak. Now, Paul... As far as we know, we only have two recorded sermons of Paul's. This is one of them. The other one is found in Acts chapter 17. And if you turn there, you reach, read through your headings. It's Paul in Athens. He's at the Areopagus, which was also known as Mars Hill. And those are the two sermons we actually have recorded. Now, of course, Paul wrote, you know, a half of the New Testament. So we have all of that. But as far as sermons that Paul preached, we have this one and one other one in Acts 17. So as Paul begins to speak here, here's what the common thing was, just so you understand, because these things don't line up with our culture and our society. To the Jewish mind, their history and rehearsing their history was was bedrock. It was central. It was important to them. And on every Sabbath, they had this ritualistic thing they did. They read from the law. They read from the prophets. And as they did these things, and and then they had someone, you know, come up and speak or expound or whatever it was, you know, the word of God was spoken and ministered to them. But we also know, as we'll find out here, and as was so common, every time the gospel was brought to the Jews, it seemed to be shrouded from their view. It seemed to be hidden. Paul wrote later in 1st or 2nd Corinthians where he talked about a veil lies over their face to this very day when Moses is read. They hear the word, but it means nothing. They don't understand it. They don't receive it. And so Paul, as he goes in here, he begins to retell the story of how God delivered his people. And he begins with the fathers. He begins with Abraham. And here's what Paul does in this little section here. And there's three times he says men and brethren, and those are sort of his breaks as we go through this. As he speaks this, he goes through part of Genesis Exodus, Leviticus is sort of implied, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Judges, Joshua. I mean, he covers 
well over 450 years of history in, in like 10, 12 verses here. And it's important to them because they understand it. They know this. That this is their context. And as he says these things, every one of these verses, it kind of, it's like it lands in and explodes and it takes them into a whole world, like what God did with Abraham and what God did in the Exodus and how God delivered them and how he sustained them and provided for them. And then, then came the prophets and then came the kings and all these things. And when, as he mentions these things, it's like boom, 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 little mines going off, little bombs. So let's read this and we'll, we'll sort of hear it. The God of this people, Israel, verse 17, chose our fathers. God's sovereignty and exalted the people. When they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, God protected them. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. God was their provider. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. God was doing all these things for them, yet they lived in constant rebellion against him. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. They didn't go in and secure the land. God gave it to them. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years and tears 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 accredits us, this is Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. This, this is the beauty of God's salvation. I don't credit it to your account. I've accounted it under the blood. I don't count it against you. And so often we walk around with guilt, don't we? This is why we have therapy. We have guilt. We have anger. We have all these unresolved issues. But if we would simply read our Bibles and come to the blood come to the cross, come to the grace of God, we would realize that God has delivered us and we don't have to continue to walk in it. When it says that God says that their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, understand that God doesn't forget, he forgives. God doesn't forget, he chooses not to remember can somebody say amen to thank God that he doesn't choose to remember my sin and, and your sin? And if God does not remember, if he chooses not to remember, now here, here's us, right? We're broken people. Someone offends us. Someone hurts us. We're in therapy. And it says that he chooses not to remember. You know what our problem is so often? We hold on to it, don't we? We're choosing to remember. In fact, we choose to ruminate upon it and to meditate upon it. And this is the source of strife in marriage. We have people that we're estranged from. I have these things in my life. There are people that issues happened in relationships that broke my heart then and break my heart today, years later. And I, I pray, when, as often as I think of it, for God to bring reconciliation. 
And it's not because I haven't tried. Often in those cases, it's because they're choosing to remember and they're like, I don't want to talk to you anymore because you did this thing to me in, you know, 1987. (laughs) Come on, man. We're under the blood. You're under the blood. Do you understand that God wants to set you free? He has set you free. From this man's seed, verse 23, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Don't we love that about John the baptizer? The humility. You know, humility is something that God wants to give every one of us. You know, too often in this world, don't we see people, you know, type A personality, type B, type C. I don't know what type B and type C is. I know what type A is. And, and we look at that and we think, well, this, this is, you know, that person, type A, driver, driver, boom, 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 get it done. Doesn't matter if there's bodies in the, the wake of my trail, I'm just going to get it done. Well, where's humility? God wants humility for every single person. Your personality has nothing to do with it. It's your heart. The problem's always with the heart. It's not with our personality. Yet so often we make it about personality. God doesn't talk about it in terms of personality. He talks about it in terms of our heart. So John, humility. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent to the Jews. He's there in the synagogue. For those who dwelt in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So they're there every week hearing the word of God, but it's bouncing off the the noggin. Having fulfilled in them, condemning him. In other words, the Jews, of course, condemned Jesus and they thought, uh, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put, uh, that he should be put to death, that is Jesus. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul is laying on them something heavy. He's like, listen, man, we, the Jews, the very people God wanted to bring salvation to, we crucified the Lord of glory. We crucified Jesus. We crucified our Savior, our Messiah. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Even though they were responsible for the death of the Messiah, it says, but God. And listen, man, anytime you see but God in the scriptures, you ought to circle that because something good is usually coming behind it. But God raised him from the dead. It's okay. God took care of it. God took care of your sin. He raised Jesus from the dead, even though you killed him. And then it says, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise, sorry, I just skipped and lost my place here. Uh, Here you go. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's painting the picture for them. Even though we killed the Lord of glory, God still accomplished his purpose. He accomplished his will. Verse 34, and he, and that he, God raised him, Jesus, up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, meaning death, the corruption of the flesh, the rotting flesh after we die. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And you're like, well, where did he say that? And what does that mean? What are, what are the sure mercies of David? In Isaiah chapter 55, just listen to this. You can turn there if you want. Here's the context. It says in Isaiah 55, 1, and this goes along with the other things we've been talking about. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. There's an invitation to a quiet time. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? 
Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. You see, this is the presence of God himself. Incline your ear to me, excuse me, incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So coming back to David, the man after God's own heart. Again, we know what happened with David. We know how God showed his mercy to David. Remember, mercy means God is withholding what you deserve. And grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. The sure mercies of David, the guilt of his murder, the murder, the adultery, the bloodshed. And if there were mercies given to David in the midst of all of that, he's saying here, the sure mercies of David can be yours. They can be mine through Christ. This is the heart of God. The same mercy that God showed David is the same mercy that God wants to give to you and to me, to every person. Verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ. And of course, God did that. He was good on his word. He did not allow Jesus to experience corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served in his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and he was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. That is, he died and decayed. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Verse 38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, capital N, Jesus, M, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness means it's no longer held against you. Okay, you're forgiven. Let me remind you of this today, Christian. You are forgiven. Now, there's a beautiful verse in Colossians chapter 3 that's just as God in Christ has forgiven you, so also should you do to others. And if God has forgiven me, and if God has forgiven you, how can I hold against you something that God chooses not to remember? It gives new meaning and understanding to our own hearts to understand that the the way we live and, and interact with others has to change, doesn't it? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things, uh, behold, all old things are gone. All things are made new. We think differently. We act differently. Why? Because of the Bible. Because of theology. Because of doctrine. Because of truth. This is how God treats us. And shouldn't we treat others the way God treats us. And indeed, shouldn't we treat others the way we want God to treat us? And he does. Verse 38, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. What does that mean? That's a legal term. That's an accounting term. And that means simply this, and the best way to understand the definition of justified is to break it apart. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means that God has blotted it out. He's stricken it from the record. And if God were to go and look in the books and to say, hey, what's in the books under the name of this person? Hmm, nothing. It's empty. It's blank. Now, this is a point where we get tripped up, doesn't it? Because most of us walk through life and we go sit in therapy because we can't forgive ourselves, because of all this stuff, because of the guilt, because of this thing we did in the past. Listen, God has not only forgiven you, he has justified you. And it's just as if you'd never sinned. So whatever that thing is that you have on your list in the back of your mind from yesterday or from 50 years ago, it's justified. God has not only forgiven it, he's blotted it out. This is the beauty. Everyone who believes is justified from all things, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses, and you could append that and even say, by anything else. You can't justify yourself. God is the only one who can justify. God is the justifier. In what religion? 
Buddhism, Confucianism, you know, Islam, in what religion are the sins of those who believe justified? None. Only in Christ are you justified. Beware, verse 40, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you, that God could do these things, that God would do these things. When we think in terms of human things, we take sin into account. We take wrongs into account. We keep a ledger. Maybe it's not physical, but it's mental. Often it's emotional. And we have to learn to let the word of God and the truth of God heal us. We need to let our feelings follow faith. Our feelings should never guide faith. The truth of God's word is what instructs us and informs us on how we should live, how we should think, and how we think reflects in how we feel. Well, I feel this, okay, but what does this say? If what this says is different, meaning the word of God, than what you feel, then who's wrong? Who's out of sync? Is it you or is it God's word? And too often, because our emotions feel so real, they, they feel like truth. We elevate them above the word of God. What we, we should be doing is saying, God, by faith, I'm gonna trust that you're gonna give me forgiveness in my heart toward that person. Regardless of how I feel, God, you've forgiven them. This is how you see them. We're quick to embrace how God sees us, but do we embrace how God sees other people? God will heal us if we will understand these things. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, get this, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. This is ministering to the Lord in private, ministering in public. It was bearing fruit. These Gentiles who were there and they heard it and the Jews walked away and they're like scratching their head. I don't know, man, this is like weird. This is a new thing. I don't know if Paul, Paul might be a little crazy here. This is why the Jews in Jerusalem kind of expelled him because he went to the dark side and they're all messed up about it. But the Gentiles, they're like, could you come back and do this again? I want to bring, we need to get some other people here to hear this. I mean, we've never heard anything like this. This, this is amazing. This is truth. This is, this is reality. We need to hear what God has to say. There's so many things. I've got a list here. I don't have time to go through it of scriptures that talk about hungering and thirsting for, for God. Psalm 119, let me just commend that to you, but I'm going to hit a few highlights here. I've probably got 20 Scriptures just out of Psalm 119 that talk about this this idea, this issue of us, the person of faith, the child of God, and how we think with respect to God and his word. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. These are things we do toward God. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Oh, that that was my heart. Your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. Revive me according to your word. Establish to your servant your word who is devoted to fearing you. These shouldn't just be words we read in a book. These should be our desire, our heart. Behold, I long for your precepts. Your statutes have been my songs in in the house of my pilgrimage. In other words, your word has infiltrated my home. I remember your name in the night. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished. God's word guides and protects us. Direct my steps by your word. I opened my mouth and I panted for I longed for your commandments. This is the heart of the person who loves God. This is one of my personal favorites, Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Wow. It's interesting today, there's this thing going around. I get these things in my email all the time, my Twitter feeds and all that stuff. There's a group of Christians, get this, who are attempting to decouple New Testament Christianity from the Old Testament. This is a thing, 
Listen to what Jesus did in Luke 24. This is my one verse rebuttal to that one. Remember, Jesus had met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection. Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in the scriptures all things concerning himself. How can you decouple the Old Testament from the New Testament? Jesus said, the, New, the Old Testament testified of me. It's madness. I just kind of hit delete and moved on to the next one. After that, I'm like, this, this, is, this is stupidity. Verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. He's like, okay, man, settle down. You know the Lord, you've been saved. Continue in the grace of God. Read the word. Hear what the Spirit is speaking. Do what it says. Remember that you're forgiven. Remember that you're justified. Remember that, here's another word that wasn't mentioned, propitiation. The wrath of God is satisfied through the blood of Christ against you. Remember these things. Continue in the grace of God. Grace is that God has given you richly and lavishly that which you do not deserve. On the next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. You know what, man? I'd settle for one street. One household. But here's what happened. In the course of a week, and you say, how did this happen? How is it that almost the whole city came in the course of a week? Here's how. Because those people who were there the week before and who heard the word of God, they were so filled and they were so overjoyed and they were so ministered by the word and ministered by the spirit. They went out and they told people. And they said, it's like, the woman at the well, right, after Jesus had ministered to her and she went back into town. And what did she do when she went into town? She said, come and hear a man who told me everything I ever did. And this is the way it spreads. You see, it's not through an organized evangelistic outreach by the church. Nothing wrong with that. But you see, the church gathered is God ministering and pouring into his people. Ephesians chapter four, uh, the, the apostles and prophets and Pastors and teachers and evangelists, they're ministering to the church and it says, for the equipping of the saints for the works of service. And then we're the church gathered, we get filled up and what do we do is we are the church scattered. There ought to be a sign above the door as we exit that says you're now entering the mission field. And we take the light out into the world. The world is darkness. Don't be fooled by what you can see. It might be bright and sunny out there right now. But spiritually speaking, the world is in darkness. We are the lights. And so we get filled up. We take the light out. That's what they did. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to do what? To hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Wow, these people are more popular than we are. This can't be right. And contradicting and blaspheming, they oppose the things spoken by Paul. That's a spiritual attack right there. That's the enemy coming against the word of God. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Praise God for that. And remember, that prayer for boldness had been happening all throughout up to this point in time. There were multiple times where they prayed for boldness. Paul wrote this in his epistles all the time. Pray for boldness for me. This is something we need, right? We need boldness. Where do I get boldness? In his presence. In that quiet time from the word of God and the spirit of God. They grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. We've done what God told us. We've brought the word to the Jew first. But since you reject it, and this is a pivot in the book of Acts, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And from this point forward, yes, Paul goes in and he sort of honors that commitment. He goes to the synagogues, but his ministry, him and Barnabas and everyone who comes after them is focused primarily on the ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul read that verse in the Old Testament and he took it as God's word to him. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. This is how God works. 
we're reading his word and the, the, the words of a verse jump off the page and they penetrate our mind and they go straight to our heart. It's like a bolt of lightning and we're like, wow, was that God speaking to me? Yes, it was. And Paul and Barnabas read this verse from the Old Testament. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And he says, this is, this is our mission. This is what we have to do. God spoke it in his word. This is the work to which he had called us to in, in private in that ministry back in Antioch. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, this verse gives people all sorts of heartburn. Are you Calvinistic? Are you Armenian? I mean, where do we stand with respect to, to God and how he works? You know what? The word of God says both. He divinely elects, he foreordains, he has foreknowledge, but then he turns around in the next breath and he says, whosoever will may believe. What's the right view? The one right down the middle. God gives us choice, but he also divinely, sovereignly chooses. Well, I have an issue with that. We'll talk to God about it. Don't you want to pick who's on your team? Can't God pick who's on his team? But can't God at the same time in his heart be loving and compassionate to thousands and to, to ten thousands and to millions? And can't God say, as he said through Peter, that he desires that none should perish, but that all should repent and come to the knowledge of the truth? That verse doesn't say that only the elect should repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. He says that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. So we don't get wrapped up in it. God appoints people to eternal life. God knows. Praise God for that. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Now, how's it happening? People. People are spreading the word of God. But the Jews stirred up the devout and the prominent women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. This sets up chapter 14. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the result of ministering to the Lord in private and ministering to the Lord in public. The happiness of a genuine Christian lies far beyond the reach of earthly disturbances and is not affected by the changes and the chances to which mortal things are exposed. Let me read that again. The happiness of a genuine Christian lies far beyond the reach of earthly disturbances and is not affected by the changes and the chances to which mortal things are exposed. In other words, whatever happens, happens, let it happen. But it's not going to deter me from my walk with God. It's not going to deter me from what God has called me to do. Later, Paul says in chapter 20 of Acts, when he meets with the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus, and he's talking about all the stuff that's happened to him. And as he speaks to them, he says, but none of these things move me. Why? Because I'm in Christ. I've been forgiven. I've been justified. I've been filled. I've been given everything needed pertaining to life and godliness. God has been more than generous and merciful to me. The martyrs were more than happy in flames, excuse me, the martyrs were more happy in flames than their persecutors were on their beds of down. So we're, we're upside down, right? We think it's to be found in all the stuff that we're building and saving and doing. It's not. It's in serving God. It's in being faithful to him. God will take care of that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God is faithful. Are you hungry for the word? I am. I hope you are. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we, we love you. Give us this desire in our own hearts. Help us to set priorities and to be able to set aside, Lord, non-negotiable time that belongs to you. <clears throat> sort of the first fruits of our day where we get along with you and we let you speak to us, you minister to us, you fill us up, you, you bind up our wounds and you minister to our, our grievances. You remind us of the good things, you remind us of the truth, you remind us of who we are in Christ. 
And you give us wisdom and you give us hope and you give us words of knowledge and words of wisdom and you lead us and you guide us and you give us hope for tomorrow and you help us to get through dark times. God, you do all these things and even more. Lord, if there are some listening this morning who perhaps they've never placed their hope, their faith, their trust in you, let this be for them a moment where they say to you right now as they reach out to you, Lord, I want to know you. I want to believe in you. Lord, help me right now. And Lord, minister to them and give them faith and lift them up and encourage them and bring your salvation into their hearts right now that they might believe and receive in the goodness of God. We love you, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.